So Zephaniah today, uh, those of you who are joining us online, so glad you're with us as well. Um, I'll give you some extra time to find Zephaniah in your Bible, uh, if you have a paper Bible. But uh, one of the latter minor prophets of the Old Testament. And uh, at the very top of your sermon outline, if you have that, each week we start out with kind of a summary of that prophet's message. And Zephaniah chronologically comes a little bit later than most of the other minor prophets. And he is prophesying and doing his ministry shortly before the Babylonian invasion, the judgment that God has been warning about is going to fall on Judah and Jerusalem and the temple is going to be destroyed. And so this is almost like the last chance, that God's last appeal to his people, Judah. And so you see uh, at the top of your outline there, Zephaniah, becomes he, because he comes later, gives kind of a, a summary message. In fact, he quotes or alludes to some of the earlier minor prophets, uh, Habakkuk, Joel, Amos, and he repeats some of the similar themes. Um, certainly, he warns of this impending judgment for those who do not repent and come to him for salvation and forgiveness. And he warns the surrounding nations, specifically by name, and then he zeroes in on his people, Judah, and says, this is your last chance. Unless you repent and turn to me, then you are doomed to this terrible judgment. And then he pivots, does 180 degrees, and the last part of chapter 3 is one of the most beautiful descriptions of salvation and God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. So if you follow your, your handout there, a big theme of the minor prophets that we see again in the book of uh, Zephaniah here is that every single human being who has ever lived, including you and I today, every single one of us are, are going to have some dealings with God. Even the most hardcore atheists are going to have some dealings with God, all of us are gonna encounter God. And we get to choose how we will encounter him. We will either encounter him as the lion of Judah, the fierce, destructive, devastating lion coming in judgment, or we will encounter him as the lamb, the lamb that was slain for us in his tender mercy, in his grace, in his forgiveness. Our, our decision in this short life determines our eternal destiny. So we choose how we will encounter God. And this theme is not just in the minor prophets. It's really all through the Bible, including the New Testament. So at the very top of your outline, we have Romans 11:23. Common theme in scripture. Consider then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell who fell away, who rebelled, turned their backs on God. Severity, that's an understatement. But to you, those of you who have come to Jesus and put your faith in him, the kindness of God, and that's an understatement too. It's overwhelming kindness and love and grace. And that's God's heart, is to show kindness. Jesus came into the world, took on human flesh to pay for our sins, and he said, I did not come into the world to judge the world but to save the world. That's his heart. So let's begin uh, down where it talks about 
a, a warning. Uh, Zephaniah, like the prophets before him, begins his book with this warning of fearful, terrifying consequences for those who are unrepentant. And he uses very, he, it seems like Zephaniah ratchet, ratchets up the intensity a little bit because the previous prophets had warned of this, but he uses more explosive, strong language. Beginning in uh, verse 1, God says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This is talking about complete, total devastation, catastrophic judgment. In even stronger terms than some of the previous, previous prophets used. Why? What is God doing? God is trying to stab his people awake. He's trying to rouse his people to face reality, to wake up so that they can repent and come to God for, for escape, for, for salvation, for deliverance. It's almost as if it's his last gasp effort. It's like a spiritual defibrillator where he's trying to shock his people to wake up and to face reality so they're not swept away in judgment. He warns that his judgment is going to come upon all human rebellion with inevitability, with impartiality, with finality, with inescapability. And in verse 14, he talks about the urgency, how soon this is coming. Remember, he was closer chronologically than the previous prophets were. So verse 14, he says, the great day of the Lord is near. It's near and coming very quickly. It's rapidly approaching. So repent, come to God with a humble and a contrite heart for his salvation, for his deliverance. Now, since this has been an oft repeated theme, a constantly recurring theme, right? Hasn't this been like a broken record if you've been here for the previous? Every one of these minor prophets starts out with this warning of horrible judgment, this pleading with people to wake up, open your eyes, recognize this so that you can escape it. Why? Why do God's people, why does everybody need to hear these warnings over and over again? Well, Zephaniah gives us the answer in a couple of places in his book. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. And God is identifying what there is about sinful human beings that requires these constant repeated warnings. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish those who are complacent, who are apathetic, who are indifferent, who are lukewarm who are like wine left on its dregs, which slowly becomes sour and gets ruined. I've been told, okay? Uh, who think, th this is their thinking, the, the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. In fact, God is sort of secondary, peripheral. Uh, he, he, he's, you know, God isn't gonna do anything, either good or bad. I like the way the message version of the Bible has verse 12. I'll search through every closet and alley in Jerusalem. I'll find and punish those who are sitting it out, fat and lazy, amusing themselves and taking it easy, who think God doesn't do anything good or bad. He isn't involved, so neither are we. 
There is something perverse in sinful human beings. We have an ability to push unpleasant thoughts out of our mind and kind of suppress um, what we know is true. Deep down, God has revealed himself to all of us, to, to every human being, that he exists and that a judgment day is coming and we will give an account. God, God has revealed that to everybody. But human beings have this perverse ability to suppress that, to push it out of their minds and to distract themselves with other diversions. One of Philip Yancey's early, one of his early books has kind of a haunting description of this and it goes back to the Holocaust during World War II and Elie Wiesel, many of you probably read his book Night. Elie Wiesel was a Holocaust survivor. He was a teenage boy and he was living in a, in a village, a Jewish village in Romania. And he said, as a teenage boy, a, a, a Polish Jew who had witnessed the beginning of the atrocities where the Nazis had, had machine gunned to death hundreds of Polish Jews, he had been able to escape that. He ended up in Elie Wiesel's hometown in Romania, and he began to warn the Jewish population. And he said, this is what's happening, and this is going to continue, and they're going to come here, and you need to get out. And Elie Wiesel said nobody believed him. They just dismissed what he was saying. They, they couldn't bring themselves to believe it. He said, because we had too much hope. Now, we would call that denial, but he said we had too much hope. A few months later, the Nazis did show up. They packed Elie Wiesel and his family and all the other. They packed them into railroad cars and sent them on their way to the death camps in Poland and in Germany. And he said, even on the way in the railroad car, he said there was an old woman that three or four different times, she erupted in screams, flames, I see flames, a furnace. And finally, they couldn't stand anymore. So they, they actually clubbed her and gagged her and put her down in a corner. And he said, even then, we had too much hope until the cars pulled into Auschwitz and we saw the furnace and we saw the crematorium. There's something perverse about human nature that can hear a clear word from God and shrug it off as if it's nothing. This is the way the first, or, or this is the way the New Testament describes it. Romans chapter one, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. This is God's general revelation to everybody through the physical creation and through our conscience. And even though God is speaking clearly that, that, that we're accountable to him and that we are going to face judgment, human beings suppress that. They push it out of their mind. And I thought, how, how contemporary, isn't this contemporary today? You think about human society today, especially the cultural elites, and how seriously do they take the reality of God, the reality of sin, and the reality of final judgment? I mean, isn't this something that they, they, just, they just push out of their minds? A couple years ago, <clears throat> Time Magazine ran a story about a truck driver in the state of Maryland who was 
drunk driving and he was swerving on the road. And the police came and they arrested him and he started to curse them out, every cuss word in the book, verbally abusive, letting them have it. So they hauled him in before the magistrate and now the drunk driver turned his attention on the magistrate and started cursing him out and every night. And so this judge knew that the penalty for drunk and disorderly conduct was a $100 fine and 30 days in jail. But this judge also knew that there was an antiquated law on the books that had never been repealed. And it was a law against public blasphemy. Now, how far back do you think that law went? But it was still on the book. It was still in effect. So he sentenced the guy to an additional $100, an additional 30 days in jail for public blasphemy. And the editor at Time, who was writing this article, was writing it in a spirit of moral outrage. How dare a judge give an additional judgment for public bla blaspheming God? Are you kidding me? This is cruel and unusual punishment. Isn't that our culture today? God is trivialized. And if you have a small God, if you, if you trivialize God, then sin isn't really anything to worry about. Sin is nothing if there is no big God to sin against. D.A. Carson is a New Testament professor at Trinity Seminary in Chicago. And for many years, Carson has gone and he's spoken on college campuses doing evangelistic meetings. And so he really has his finger on the, on the pulse of American college students. And he says the one doctrine that they have the hardest time believing and understanding is the doctrine of sin. In fact, he said, if you use the word sin, you're gonna hear some chuckles. Sin is, is like, it's like the punchline of a joke. It's so antiquated, it's so old fashioned. Well, of course, if, if God is trivial, then sin is trivial and judgment is trivial. I mean, Jonathan Edwards, back in the 1700s, uh, his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he lays it on thick about how the only thing that keeps lost people from plunging into hell immediately is the mere good pleasure of God. And he uses all kinds of graphic images. And he was deadly serious about it. And his hearers were deadly serious about that. And many of them repented and came to faith in Christ. You know, today... You couldn't preach sinners in the hands of an angry God today. You know what's relevant today? God in the hand of angry sinners. God, how could you allow this? How could you allow that? The, the situation has been reversed. And maybe that's why all through the Bible there are repeated warnings. Because God loves us. He wants us to escape his judgment. But God is a big God and so sin it is a deadly serious issue, and judgment is something that, that we all have to face. And so if there is a God, if, if the Bible is true, and if there is a final judgment, then nothing could be more important than getting into a right relationship with God to escape that final judgment, and then helping others around us to get right with God so that they escape that judgment. And then the next section, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, 
we see God getting more specific with the target of his judgment. And he starts with the different Gentile nations around Jerusalem and uh, Judea, and then he narrows in on Jerusalem and Judea himself. Ju Judah was the southern kingdom of Israel. It was the line of David. It was the messianic line that Jesus would, would ultimately come through. And th these were the, th this was the apple of God's eye. This was his people, the southern kingdom. And yet you look at what God says about them. If, you know, if, any, if anybody was going to take God seriously, if anybody was going to be receptive and open and take to heart what God said, you would think it would be the southern kingdom of Judah. But look at how they respond. Chapter 3, verse 2. It says, she, Judah, obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Even the southern kingdom of Judah. You know, God does not play favorites. God does not show partiality. God does not show favoritism. God created everybody. God loves all of us. Jesus died so that whoever will could come to him, and he desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And just because you grew up as a Jew in Old Testament Israel didn't mean you were automatically saved and forgiven. Just because you grew up in a Christian family, just because you attend a Christian church, just because you serve in a Christian church doesn't mean you're one of God's true children. Each of us individually must make that decision and turn to Jesus in submission and repentance and into faith. And then beginning in chapter 3, verse 8, there's a huge 180 that the book takes. And there are radical contrasts in this last part of the book. And the point Zephaniah is making, just as God is terrifying and terrible and threatening and a ravaging, destroying lion to those who are unrepentant, just so he is tender, he is gracious, he is loving, he is kind beyond measure to those who do humble themselves and repent and open their lives and their hearts to him. So let's pick it up in verse 8. Actually, let's pick it up in verse 14 and follow along as I read some verses. Zephaniah 3, 14, sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, because the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? Younger son turned his back on God, disgraced God, went, lived a wild life, sinful life, brought great disgrace upon his father. And yet when he humbled himself and came home, how did the father respond? Okay, you're going to have to work off this debt to me. You're, you're going to have to do that. No, the father saw him, ran to him. The father burst into joyful singing. 
later in the parable it says, we had to celebrate. We had to kill him. We had to make Mary and have a party because he who was lost is now home. That's God's. Don't you see that coming through here? This is God's heart toward his people. And so look at that list near the end of your life. These are all the things God promises to do for you and for me because we are his redeemed people. He says, I will gather them into one people. I will create a harmonious union from every tribe, tongue, people, nation, race, and language. I will bring them into one by my Holy Spirit, and I will create harmony and unity, and they will serve me shoulder to shoulder. So he'll gather them into one. He says, I will do a purifying work in them. Verse 9 says, I will give them purified lips and the remnant will do no wrong. Notice he says, I will give this to them. When we open our lives to Christ, the Holy Spirit invades our lives and begins to purify us from the inside and, and constantly create and renew and sustain a love for God and a desire to please him. So he does a purifying work in us. He says, he will cancel and take away all judgment against them. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away his judgments from you. He has taken away, he's canceled your punishment. And so we have peace with God today. Why? Because there is therefore now no condemnation. No more. The condemnation fell on Jesus 2,000 years ago. No condemnation. The punishment has been taken away. And then he says, I will draw near to them and I will dwell in them. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious war. He who is mighty to save and mighty to keep and mighty to help and mighty to purify. Not only is he in our midst, but he's inside of us through his Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us and he's carrying on to completion, that purifying work that he started in us. I will defeat all your enemies. Verse 15, he has cleared away your enemies. You will fear disaster no more. He has turned back your enemy. And then probably the hardest for us to believe, the most amazing part of this, is that he bursts into joyful song over us. He delights in us so much. He will take great, great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. What does it mean he will quiet you with his love? I think that he will kind of bring us into stunned silence and astonishment at how overwhelming his love and his grace and his goodness and his mercy. We'll be stunned in, in, into speechlessness. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is talking about how God relates to us and sees us. I don't know about you, but I've never had any of my friends or any of my kids or even my wife burst into joyful song over me when I, when I got home. They were so upset. I've asked them too many times. It still, it still hasn't had. This says Almighty God has that attitude toward you. His beloved, cleansed, adopted sons and daughters the one he's, his son died for, he rejoices over you. He delights to do you. God does not grudgingly do good to us out of deference to Jesus. No, he, he does good to us with all of his heart, with all of his soul, willingly 
happily, he rejoices to do us good with all of his heart and with all of his soul. Came across a story by a Christian man named Daniel Taylor. It's called Letters to My Children. And it's a book about different experiences he had growing up, and many of them have spiritual lessons. <clears throat> but in the book, he tells a story that happened when he was in sixth grade. Periodically, the students were taught how to dance, and uh, the teacher would line up the boys at the door to choose their partners. Now, doesn't this sound cruel to you? I, I, I hope schools don't do this anymore. But he says, imagine what it would have been like to be one of the girls waiting to be chosen by one of the boys, wondering if they were going to, going to be chosen, knowing one of them was going to be chosen last, and wondering if they'd be chosen by someone they didn't like. Well, wouldn't that have been all of the boys? You know, we're talking sixth grade here, right? He said, one girl, Mary, was always chosen last. Because of a childhood illness, one of her arms was drawn up and she had a bad leg. She wasn't pretty, she wasn't smart, and she wasn't thin. The assistant teacher in the class happened to attend the same church that Dan did, and one day she pulled him aside and said, Dan, next time we have dancing, I want you to choose Mary. Dan couldn't believe it. Why would anybody, anybody pick Mary when there was Linda, Shelley, or even Doreen? Dan's teacher told him that it was what Jesus would have done. Oh, great. You know, what do you, what do you say now, right? And he said, deep down, he said, I, I knew it was true. But that didn't make it any easier. All Dan could hope for was that he would be the last boy in line. That way, he would be able to choose Mary, do the right thing, and no one would be any wiser. Instead, when the day came, Dan was the first in line to choose. He said, the faces of the girls were turned toward me, some smiling. He said, I looked at Mary and I saw that she was only half turned toward the boy that would be choosing. She knew that she would not be picked first. The teacher said, okay, Dan, choose your partner. I remember feeling very far away. I heard my voice say, I choose Mary. Never, he said, has reluctant virtue been so rewarded. I still see her face, un undimmed in my memory. She had lifted her head, and on her face, reddened with pleasure and surprise and embarrassment all at once, was the most genuine look of delight and even pride that I've ever seen before or since. He said it was so pure that I had to look away because I knew I didn't deserve it. Mary came and took my arm as we had been instructed, and she walked beside me, bad leg and all, just like a princess. One of the best memories of his life. Folks, you and I are Mary. This is our story. This is our reality, too. Our sin had made us ugly and repulsive to God. It warranted only his wrath. But because of the saving work of Jesus for us and in us, we have been clothed in the radiant beauty of Jesus himself. And now God doesn't grudgingly do us good. God delights to do us good with all of his heart and with all of his soul. 
because of what Jesus has done for us. And because of that, we can walk with our heads held high, knowing that God is for us, that God will never turn away from us, never turn away, never stop from doing us good and delighting in us. And we have the privilege of helping bring others into that experience in this short life we have on earth. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. We are far more sinful than we could bear to think. And yet, Lord, you are far more loving and gracious than we can ever fathom. So, Lord, thank you that, that in joy you chose us. You came after us. You opened our eyes. You opened our hearts. You made us your beloved adopted children. And now, Lord, you delight in us. You rejoice to do us good all of our days with all of your heart and all of your soul. Lord, how thankful we are. And Lord, how could we keep this to ourselves? Help us, Lord, to share this amazing salvation with others. Lord, help us to show our gratitude to you by how we live. Thank you, Lord, that you take pleasure in your people. You beautify the humble with your salvation. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.